Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Welcome to our first episode of Trading Straits, focusing on LNG. I'm Antonia Paniides, and I'm a partner in the Transportation Group at Reed Smith in London. And I'm joined by my colleagues, both leading experts in LNG, James Atkin, a partner in our ENR group at Reed Smith in London, and Kevin Keenan, a partner in our Transportation Group in Houston. Thank you both for joining today. I'm going to kick off with one of the key issues in LNG that everyone's talking about. So much has been said in the press about the green credentials of LNG and its role as a transitional fuel. Can I kick off by asking Kevin what your views are on this? Yes, Antonio, that's a, I think that's a great question. So I agree with the characterization, as I, I think most people would, that LNG is, is definitely a green fuel because of the carbon emissions from natural gas or regasified LNG are significantly lower than, say, coal, HFO, diesel, bunkers, gasoline, all of these fuels that are used either in power generation or transportation. The emissions from all of these are capable of being significantly reduced through the use of LNG, of course. Uh, and so I think it's pretty undisputed that it is indeed a green fuel. In terms of the transitional nature of it, I think one has to know, if you're going to call something transitional, one has to know that there's something to transition to. And I'm not certain at this point that we know what that transition is. So we hear a lot about hydrogen, for example, but only time will tell whether we can commercially deploy hydrogen on a large enough scale to replace fossil fuels. And even if we can, that's not a small task. And in my mind, it will take decades to accomplish. Instead, I prefer to think of LNG as a replacement fuel, as it is as we speak, slowly and in some cases quite rapidly replacing every one of the fuels I just mentioned for power generation and transportation. Thanks, Kevin. And, and from a shipping perspective as well, we see with a lot of ship owners now, the new, new build orders that they're ordering is for the ability to be able to burn LNG. And they're making that in investment on the basis that a vessel has a 20 year life cycle. So, so it's interesting to hear that also on the shipping side of things when owners are looking to fuel, certainly LNG is, is up there. Exactly. And we're, we're seeing you know, quite a bit of activity in that space with LNG bunkering and, and uh, other activities that result from, from that technology. James, would you have anything to add to that? I fully agree with Kevin. And I think you know, if you look historically at uh, LNG and the fact that it was often used uh, in association with monetizing associated natural gas, so where crude oil was produced with gas, often that gas would be flared and a wasted commodity. And so LNG has actually created a commodity out of something which would otherwise be wasted and, and burned and create carbon emissions. And so from its very genesis, I think LNG, as Kevin said, is a green fuel. That said, you know, I think we're, the, the nature of the conversation we're having surrounding carbon emissions and environmental issues 
and, and global impact is it's the key issue that most people, companies, governments are trying to tackle and address today. And so without a doubt, you know, LNG and natural gas have been hugely successful in displacing coal and fuel oils, exactly as Kevin described, because it's cleaner and the turbines are more efficient. But I think for the LNG industry as part of the transition, is it's important to be ahead of that discussion and to be proactive about the positive nature of LNG. And so not reactive uh, to the suggestions of fossil gas and other things. I think you know, it, it's the transition, if we're going to make it from the carbon-based economy to, as Kevin described, another, another type of economy, whether that's hydrogen or renewables, et cetera, it needs an all-tools-in-the-box solution to, to get to that goal. I think LNG is is an essential part of that process. Thanks, James. And just picking up on that, how do you think the attitudes of companies and governments will develop in relation to LNG? Is it going to continue growing? I mean, we're we're seeing mixed messages somehow. The World Bank came out to say that it didn't see its role in as a transitional fuel anyway. But what are your views? Well, as you say, I think everybody is focused on climate change, sustainability, and the need to move away from carbon-heavy power generation and fuel, so moving away from coal and fuel oils. But ultimately, I think the impact and the attitude of the companies and governments depends on, large part, where they're located. And so one of the key strengths of LNG is that it provides energy security to jurisdictions, countries that don't aren't blessed with significant natural resources and access to multiple competing sources of energy. So, for example, Europe, gas supplies from Russia, Africa, North Sea, the US, blessed with its own shale gas reserves. But if you move into Asia, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, with depleting gas reserves, it's a completely different outlook. And so LNG in those markets, I think, plays a fundamental role in terms of allowing the security of the relevant markets and their energy production. But that said, I think in how the governments and companies are looking at LNG is very much through the prism of its green credentials. And that's why I think we're going to see increasing focus by governments on trying to assess the relative greenness of LNG, which is going to involve uh, methane measuring, emissions testing, trying to have standard approaches to to measuring emissions from the wellhead through to the end of the production cycle, but also companies being responsive and trying to reduce their own carbon footprint for each tonne of LNG produced, whether that's through carbon capture storage or uh, renewables for power generation at liquefaction facilities. And so I think there's a lot going on in the market uh, to try and make LNG a greener fuel, which is a positive development. I think that's right. I think we're seeing a call for transparency, but also some regulation harmonisation as to the declaring of these emissions. So I think we'll see a lot more coming out from the regulators on this. Totally agree. You know, I I want to differentiate, though, between we talked in the last question about whether LNG is a transitional or, in my mind, as I said, it's a replacement fuel. 
you know, I'm focused there on the word fuel. Obviously, you know, we've got other technologies out there, um, not fuels, but technologies. We've got wind, we've got solar, we've got, you know, offshore wave technology that can produce power. So, you know, the, I, I sort of think of those separately in terms of whether we're talking about LNG as a replacement fuel for something. And I come back and, and would agree with James that, you know, companies and governments, public and private enterprises, at this point have a heavy focus on becoming greener and cleaner. I'm personally working on uh, several projects, my suspicion is that James is too, that are sponsored by either private or government entities to try to decrease emissions, to try to increase the reliability, security of supply. LNG does all of that and is really, uh, those factors I think are, are largely the drivers for most of the LNG development that, that I and James are working on around the, the globe at the moment. And what do you anticipate will be the growth markets for LNG? What infrastructure, if any, will need to be developed to support such growth? So in, in my mind, uh, there's really three things that, that I would focus on there. Uh, floating liquefaction, I think, has the potential to unlock uh, vast and previously stranded gas reserves stranded due to geographic location mostly. So for example, Shell built the first large-scale FLNG vessel in Korea for the Prelude project that sits offshore Western Australia. And that unlocked gas reserves that prior to that technology coming to fruition would never have, have been able to be monetized because it's so far offshore. It doesn't make any sense to build a, a pipeline, a, you know, a subsea pipeline that long to get it onshore and then liquefy it in a uh, stick-built facility, a traditional onshore facility. So floating LNG, I think, is one. Uh, floating regasification is the other. That's the other end of the chain. And I think what you've seen, you know, FSRUs are not new anymore. They've been around for 20 years. But what you've seen is that they have proliferated and they are opening up new markets and are found now in countries where you wouldn't have guessed that they could put an LNG import terminal for various reasons, whether it's uh, the length of the development, whether it's the timeline or the voluminous regulations that you have to jump through to get it done. All of these things from an FSRU perspective are abbreviated and the cost is abbreviated as well. It's a much cheaper way to, to deploy that technology. And then the final step I would say is joining power generation with FSRUs. So imagine all of these islands in, in Southeast Asia, all the islands in the Caribbean that right now are burning diesel HFO to produce power. If you could, if you could couple electricity generation with an FSRU as a, as a, a turnkey solution in some of these locations, it would, you know, in, in Indonesia alone, the hundreds of islands in Indonesia, small islands that uh, it doesn't make any sense to build a large-scale LNG import terminal in. Imagine being able to take an FSRU, couple it with power generation, and be able to produce power on a scalable basis for some of these islands. And the Caribbean is the same way. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. And I would agree with all of that. And I think that the key message for LNG and its potential growth is to increase market penetration, to get into the markets, allow conversion from other power sources, whether that's coal or fuel oils. And so further to what Kevin just described, I think also 
allowing break bulk to have ISO containers of LNG to allow smaller volumes to be delivered in, into relative markets. But also when you go into certain jurisdictions like India, for example, where the gas pipeline system is currently going undergoing expansion, but there's a long way to go until it reflects European or US gas network infrastructure to allow transportation of gas by containers, by rolling stock, and that allowed penetration and replacement of LPGs. But I think also in terms of growth markets for LNG, I know Kevin's doing a huge amount of work in the bunkering space. I think that's really exciting for the shipping industry. Also for truck fuel, if you have a centralized source of LNG for, for loading uh, on buses or trucks for, for heavy heavy goods vehicles and, and mega container ships. And I think that it's, it's an exciting new opportunity for the market to get into, the, into those heavy industries. Thanks both. And I just have one final question. Perhaps, James, you can shine some light on the significant price spike in January this year and what what do you believe be, will be the consequence moving forward? Well, it was a, a dramatic series of events, which I think led to uniquely high prices, not only for the commodity for the LNG, but also freight prices in the LNG tanker space, where people were desperately scrambling to try and secure cargoes for, for their end, end markets. And I think... It wasn't just of- cold weather then. <laughs> it was in large part due to cold weather, exceptionally cold weather, and people not having sufficient LNG in storage to meet that demand, and then constraints in the Panama Canal, which added together to create a unique storm of lack of uh, availability of LNG and truly eye-watering prices. And I think the the one lesson or that people will be taking away from that episode is that the LNG market has become remarkably fragmented. There are a plethora, as we've talked about on this call, new markets, new players, new buyers, new consumers. And the focus of the relationship between long-term buyers and sellers has broken down. And certain LNG buyers are very much focused on short-term spot procurement strategies as the optimal way to supply their gas-fired power operations and jurisdictions. And I think what we saw in January was a wake-up call of the dangers of that strategy. And if you look at some of the longer players in this market, they are quite public in how they have a mixed portfolio for their LNG supplies. So long-term contracts may be making up 60 70% of their supply portfolio, coupled with 30 40% of spot, so they can take advantage of market opportunities. And I think what we'll see as a result of the price spikes in January is people reevaluating their procurement strategies. And it's a discussion we've been having in the LNG sector for at least the last five, 10 years of, of the need for long-term contracts from the sell side to provide the security for the investment for infrastructure. And I think what we see from January is a, a an awakening almost from some of the new buyers of the importance of protecting themselves from radical price spikes with the security of long-term supply arrangements. Thank you. Kevin, anything to add? 
I would agree with that completely, and I would add one factor that, in my mind, having spoken um, shortly after that price spike with a, a client who's, who's been in the business, he's a very sharp developer, been in the business 30-plus years, and his explanation, in part, was that the uh, situation in, in Japan and Korea, Japan more than Korea, but but certainly both of them to some extent, is that they they are not as integrated in their markets as the US, Canada, the UK, the EU, for example, are. And what I mean by not as integrated, I mean the pipeline infrastructure is not there. And so you've got these disintegrated markets for natural gas. And what that results in, and I'm I'm venturing into dangerous territory here because I'm not an economist, but what that results in is is sort of an inelastic supply-demand curve. Right where the you know if Japanese and and Korean buyers need LNG, they need it at at any price. And you know obviously any price is probably hyperbolic. They they probably be a price where they 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 couldn't take it. But and and when they don't need LNG, they won't take it no matter how cheap it is. So it doesn't respond to the the types of supply and demand price swings that would normally be found in a in an elastic market. And I think that was probably an exacerbating factor. I agree with James that all of those, you know, sort of a perfect storm confluence of of unfortunate events led to this price spike. But I think exacerbating that was probably something that that's not going to go away uh, anytime soon. It's just a function of how those markets are uh, are designed. Thank you. Thanks both. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please do reach out to us if you've got any questions or if you simply want to continue the discussion. Thanks all. Thanks, Antonio. Thank you, Antonio. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at ReedSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.